lawyer to, to hang out with these people? Are you expecting me to, to love on those kinds of people? Is that what you're asking me to do? And so as I read this parable, or even just this interaction before the story, I kind of read it with a sense that maybe the lawyer is asking this second question with a sense of, of maybe nervousness, or, or kind of uh, a bit kind of worried about the people that Jesus is hanging out with, these kind of undesirables, the people who are on the, the fringes of society. You know, he hangs out with tax collectors and he has dinner with, with prostitutes and he, he meets all these people that, you know, everyday ordinary Joe Gloves wouldn't want to be seen hanging around with. And so maybe the lawyer has got some kind of nervousness and worry around, are you expecting me to engage with these people? Is that what you're saying through this? And it also feels a little bit like he's trying to corner Jesus because, as we've already said, the kind of religious leaders, the, the teachers of the, the law were very kind of rule-driven. They like to know what is exactly expected of me. What do I absolutely have to do in order to kind of earn my way into heaven. It's kind of their, their way of thinking. And so it feels like he's kind of trying to drive Jesus into a corner to pin him down and say, just hang on a minute, let's get specific about who exactly is my neighbor. Give me the, the kind of play-by-play details of who it is that you're expecting me to love. It, it's almost like he's expecting Jesus to say, okay, Sit down and let me tell you. A Jew is your neighbor, but a Gentile or a Samaritan is not. A white person is your neighbor, but a black person is not. A straight person is your neighbor, but a gay person is not. Maybe he's kind of expecting Jesus to, to just lay down the rules and the regulations as to who it is my neighbor is, who it is that you're expecting me to love. But of course Jesus doesn't do that. That's not his style. He doesn't slap a label on it and say, there it is. There's your list of exactly what you need to do. Now go and do it. Instead, in true Jesus style, he tells a story. He tells a story. And this story is an example of a man who did. A man who did. Replying to the lawyer's question, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God, to inherit eternal life. Jesus then tells a story of a man who did, of a man who acted, essentially saying that according to your expert understanding of the law, this is what you need to do to inherit the kingdom of God. Now we've already said that the message of Jesus is that there's nothing that we can do to to earn that, to work our way into that, to to kind of, uh, kind of build up credit, if you like, to get into heaven, to earn eternal life. But the lawyer has asked this specific question. What do I need to do? That's what he wants to know. What is it that I need to do? And so Jesus replies with the subtext of, well, you don't need to do anything because I'm going to pay the price anyway. But if you want to do something, if you want to do something, do this. And so that leads him into 
this story, this parable that we're looking at this morning. And it says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he, he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Notice, we don't know anything about this man that has been beaten up. We don't know anything other than he was stripped and he was beaten and he was left for dead. That's all the information that Jesus gives us. And, and actually the fact that he was stripped of everything is key. The fact that he was left unconscious is key to this story because historically a person would be identified by the clothes that they're wearing and the way in which they spoke. But this man that Jesus is talking about, well, he's wearing no clothes, and at this moment in time, he can't speak. And so we have no idea of knowing his status in life. We cannot identify this person. He could have been a king. He could have been a peasant. He could have been a Jew. He could have been a Samaritan. We have no idea, and I believe that that is a real key part. There was an intentionality around Jesus telling that part of the story that he had been stripped of all his clothing and left unable to speak. And so then we move into these three different characters of the story that approach the man who's been beaten up, left on the side of the road. A priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan. Now I'm sure you've heard plenty of jokes that begin an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman. I'm sure if I ask you right now, you could probably reel one off. Um, whether they could be construed as racist these days, I don't know. But we've heard these stories, haven't we? An Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman walk into a bar or walk into whatever situation, and almost inevitably the Irishman does something stupid. Well, I, I think that the, that the the pattern of this story that Jesus is telling is not too dissimilar, because the three first, the three people who were who were serving in the temple were a priest a Levite, and actually a layperson. And so Jesus is telling this story to, to those who are gathered around. It's not just a lawyer one-on-one. There will have been other people around listening to this story. And so he starts the story and he says, oh, a priest walks by this man and he does nothing. And then a Levite comes along and, and he also does nothing. And you can almost sense the, the crowd around second-guessing what is about to happen in this story. Oh yeah, we know how this goes. The layperson, the third person that they recognize from serving in the temple, this layperson is going to come along, the everyday Joe Vlogs relatable person is going to come along and he's going to be the one to make a difference. He's going to be the one to engage with this broken map. But that is far too obvious for Jesus. It's far too obvious for Jesus. And so he chooses to throw in this controversial twist to his storytelling. A priest walks by and does nothing. Uh, A Levite walks by and does nothing. And then a Samaritan comes by. And you can almost hear an intake of breath from all of the Jews listening to this story because Jews and Samaritans were not friendly. They did not get on. You only need to look back to 
Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well to get a clear picture of this. When Jesus approaches her and says, give me something to drink, she's like, how are you speaking to me? We do not converse with one another. We cannot be having this interaction. It is socially unacceptable. You know, Jews and Samaritans, they didn't speak to each other, let alone share a drinking cup, which is essentially what Jesus was asking of this woman. And so if you skip to the end of this parable, of this story, you see again that, that Jesus asks the lawyer, which of these three people proved to be a neighbor? And the lawyer's response was, the one who showed mercy. The one who showed mercy. He wasn't even able to say the S word. That was the, the kind of the, the hatred and the, the disdain between Jews and Samaritans. He wasn't willing to say, oh, it was the Samaritan who did something good. It wasn't the Samaritan who did something well. It was the one who showed mercy. And so coming to this story, the, the priest walks by, he does nothing. The Levite walks by, and he does the same. And then the Samaritan comes along, and it says in verse 33, he had compassion for him. He had compassion for him. And, and that word used, the language used there, it's the same compassion that the father had for the prodigal son in that parable that I'm sure you also know really well. He had compassion for him. There is something going on inside that moved the Samaritan to action. Now the Samaritan wasn't local to this area that is being described in the story. Jesus was using a real road. He wasn't making up the setting. This was a real place that they would have known and it was notoriously dangerous and renowned for robbers and people like that. So the story that Jesus telling wasn't completely fabricated. It was set in kind of known circumstances, a place that you would not want to walk down alone on a dark night. So they would have known what was going on here, but the Samaritan wasn't local to this area. They were on their way to Samaria, but they weren't there yet. And so the Samaritan in this story wasn't a local person. And so this man that he comes, that he approaches, lying beaten and stripped and broken on the side of the road, in a literal sense, was definitely not the Samaritan's neighbor. But what did he do? What did he do? He approached this unidentifiable man, possibly a king, possibly a peasant, possibly a Jew, possibly a fellow Samaritan. He approaches this unidentifiable, unidentifiable man and helps him. He didn't care who he was. He didn't care how wealthy he was. He didn't care where he was from. He didn't care what his status was. He had compassion for him. He had compassion for him. And so he goes over and he bandages the man and it says he poured on oil and wine. He poured on oil and wine. And this, again, is also a really important point to this scripture. You see, we could possibly even kind of gloss over this just as part of the 
the healing process, the, the taking care process, but actually the fact that Jesus chooses to say he poured on oil and wine is really important because actually oil and wine would be poured onto the high altar as part of worship to God in the temple. This was a, an act of worship that those hearing this story would have been well aware of. And so what Jesus is perhaps uh, kind of pointing into at this moment is that the Samaritan chooses to pour out oil and wine onto this uh, injured man. But the priest and Levite, they failed to do that. Which almost suggests that they didn't see the act of mercy and the act of compassion as worship to God. They had the opportunity to worship God by, by interacting, intervening, coming to help this, this broken person, but they chose not to do it. They almost didn't see that as an act of worship to God. And so the Samaritan goes and he, and he bandages the guy up and he pours oil and water on him and then he puts him on his donkey and he takes him to an inn. And it says that there he takes care of him even further. Now obviously this wounded man had no money. He'd just been mucked. So he, he, he had nothing on him. He couldn't pay for what was being done. He couldn't pay for his night or, or week's stay, however long it was at this inn. He couldn't pay for the food that he was going to eat or the, the medicines that he was going to receive. He had no money. And, and actually if it, get, if it got to the end of his stay and he, and he couldn't pay the debt that was owed, he would have been arrested. And the Samaritan knew this. He was well aware of it. And so it said that he took care of it. He left two denarii with the innkeeper, which is the same as two full days' wages, saying, you have, have this money to take care of this guy. And if there's anything left over, if there's anything that I'm missing that I've not paid, I'll cover that cost too when I return. Knowing all of this, knowing that, that, the, uh, that this was going to cost uh, potentially two full days wages, maybe even more, I think it's safe to say that the, that the uh, Samaritan was, was well aware that he wasn't going to get this money back. This guy had been beaten, he'd been robbed, he was left with nothing, and so he was well aware that actually this action this compassion that he was showing on the map, there was a cost here. There was a cost here, not just a financial cost. Yes, he'd been handed over to Denari and he may have to even pay some more. There was a financial cost, but also a time cost. You know, when he was going on this road, he was probably going somewhere with an intention to, to get to a place that he had to be. But he chose to stop that journey and to help this man and then he takes him to an inn and he stays with him for a bit and then he's going to maybe even go out of his way to come back to the inn to make sure the debt is paid. There's a cost here, a financial cost and a time cost. And so after telling this story, after telling this parable, Jesus asks the lawyer, which of these three people the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the victim? 
Now that language used here is so important. Which proved to be, proved to be. It could perhaps be more accurately translated as which of these three became a neighbor. He uses it, it's translated as proved to be a neighbor, but actually, uh, more accurately, it's who became a neighbor. I heard a quote this week that said, one cannot define a neighbor in the New Testament. One can only be a neighbor. It's an action here, being a neighbor. Because the truth here, and I think the point that Jesus is making by sharing this story is that actually love is a choice. Love is a choice. The priest walked by, he saw this person on the side of the road, he probably weighed up the cost that it would be to him, because it, in that kind of culture, had he even got within six feet of an unclean person, there was then going to be a time cost and a financial cost to cleanse himself of being now unclean. So he probably weighed the cost on you know, It's a long stretch of road you could see for a long way. So he probably saw this person up ahead of him on that, that, that journey then, those next few feet or whatever, do I stop, do I help? I need to get somewhere. If I do this, I'm going to be unclean. I'm going to have to go through the closing process. You have to buy all the, the elements for it. This is going to cost me. And he chooses to walk by. And then the Levite comes along, and maybe he did the same, or maybe even he was just a bit behind the priest, and he saw the priest, essentially his boss, doing this, just walking by. And so he thought, well, if he can walk by, then I can walk by. Maybe that's what was going through his, his head. But he also chose not to act. He chose not to show compassion. But then the Samaritan comes along. And he weighs up all of the cost. And yet he still chooses to love. He chooses to love. I think there's a context here that Jesus is showing you between the connection of loving God and loving the people around you. That's essentially what this flows out of, isn't it? The, 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 the lawyer has given this, this Levitical Orthodox answer that says, in order to inherit eternal life, I need to love God and I need to love my neighbor. What, what Jesus is showing through telling this story is that there is a, a connection between loving God and loving those around you. These two things cannot be separated. This idea that, that in loving his neighbor, the man who was robbed, the Samaritan is also showing awareness and love for God. Loving God is always worked out as loving your neighbor. We don't need to figure out how to love God, how to, how to worship him, and then make a plan how we're going to love our neighbor. We don't need to, to throw ourselves into worship on a Sunday morning, or in the car, or wherever it is you're doing, and then think about loving our neighbor as an afterthought. These two actions of loving God and loving others are intrinsically linked. So ask yourself this. If you don't love your neighbor, do you really love God? That could be a challenge, couldn't it? If you don't love 
your neighbor, do you really love God? Because in telling this story, Jesus is saying these two things are interconnected, they're entwined, they're, they're linked. If you don't love your neighbor, are you really loving God? Because the, the truth is that this idea of loving our neighbor, of loving other people, of loving those around us, it, it comes from, it flows out of a deep love for God that's already within us. It flows out of that place. Perhaps for anyone that, that's listening that isn't a believer, I'm not saying that if you don't love God, you can't love your neighbor. Of course you can love your neighbor whether you love God or don't love God. In fact, perhaps loving your neighbor is a great place to find God, I think, because these two things are interconnected there. They're linked. But if you do love God, if you are a follower of Christ, then I think what Jesus is saying here is that if you love God, you better also be loving your neighbor. Because you can't confess, profess to love me if you're not doing this action of loving your neighbor. I heard it, it described like this. You can't divorce your vertical love with your horizontal love. You can't separate the, the love to God and the love to others. They go hand in hand. And so the, the lawyer asks this question, doesn't he? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you don't need to do anything. You don't need to do anything. But if you want to do something, love your neighbor. It's interesting that, that following this story, we find ourselves, if you just read on to the next bit in your Bible, you find yourself in the, with Jesus in the house of Mary and Martha. And that depiction in that story of, of, of Martha busying herself with preparing a meal for Jesus and making the house look clean and tidy, but just generally being, being busy getting things ready for Jesus. And then the contrast of Mary just sitting at the feet of Jesus in his presence, just soaking in his presence. And there's a real tension here between the parable that we've just read and this portion of scripture about Mary and Martha because the parable is encouraging us to act, is encouraging us to, to do something with our love of God. But then we go on to this following portion of scripture and actually there we're being encouraged to just be in God's presence. There's a real tension here, isn't there? But the reality is that we don't love our neighbor as a way of earning our way into heaven. We don't do it to gain eternal life, but it's a response to God's love and his grace. So whether you're more naturally a, a Mary or you're more naturally a Martha, neither of those two things are necessarily right or wrong. Because as we act like Mary and we spend time in God's presence, soaking in his love and his grace and his mercy and his compassion, then out of that flows the action of loving our neighbor. There is so much in this story. and I, I was kind of tempted as I was writing to go off on a whole bunch of tangents, but I think that I want to end it 
there because it that kind of sums up the message and I'm sure you've not missed the fact that actually this is the kind of vision for our church, the overarching kind of message, love God, love people, which is kind of explained and unpacked throughout this parable, which I which is why I thought we should touch on this as part of this series. The lawyer asks, who is my neighbour? Who is my neighbour? But I think he's asking the wrong question. And so I want to leave you with this this morning as we go into a new week, whether you've got work or time with family or or time, whatever it is that you're doing this week, ask yourself this question. Instead of who is my neighbour? Ask, who can I become a neighbour to? Who can I become a neighbour to? And just in the back of your mind, keep that knowledge of the fact that the Samaritan knew there was a cost to his action, and yet he chose to do it anyway. Who can you become a neighbour to this week, even if it's going to cost you? Even if you need to go out of your way, even if you need to cancel your plans in order to be a neighbour, who can you become a neighbour to? Where are we pray? So Father God, we thank you that, that Jesus in his time on earth, he came and he shared some incredible stories, the stories that we can learn from, that we can grow from, that we can take some incredible truths from. And and I pray that having read and and unpacked this parable of the Samaritan man who who went out of his way, who who paid the cost in order to have compassion, to show compassion, to show love to his name. Maybe we can catch hold of some of that message, of that heart, and ask ourselves as we go into this week, who can we become a neighbour to? Give us the boldness and the courage to do that, not to to find an excuse not to be a neighbour, not to to make uh, excuses or find reasons why we just can't do that right now because I've got to do this, but actually to have the courage, the boldness, the faith to, to go out of our way, to cancel our plans, to change direction, to pay the cost, be it time or finances or whatever it is, to become a neighbour to those in need. In Jesus' name.